Welcome to Vermont Artists and Authors, where we interview great storytellers and artists from the amazing Green Mountain State. This is episode 27. I am your host, Barney Smith of StoryComic.com, and we're excited to have back with us the famed Vermont author and folklorist, Joseph Citro. Joseph. Joe, yes. how you doing? So, so it's interesting. Last time we met, we talked uh, a couple years ago. You were talking. You were you were promoting your upcoming book that you're coming out with called the uh, the Vermont Ghost Guide. Right. That came out. Plus, since then, you've had the Vermont Ghost Experience come out. Right. Plus, you have also come out with just recently, as of this recording, a couple months ago, the uh, Loose Ends, which is your auto. So it's a hundred chapters of a hundred words in each chapter. Is that how it went? Right, right. It, this is a form that um, Jim DeFilippi pioneered. He's a friend of mine and he has a publishing company called Brown Fedora Books. <laughs> and he um, he came up with this idea for writing autobiographies that would be um, exactly a hundred chapters. And each chapter is exactly 100 words, not 100, not 102, not 98, exactly 100. Wow. Which is, which is a bit challenging. And um, yeah. And this was my pandemic project. You know, okay. I, I couldn't, I couldn't really get out and do the research and meet the people and visit the sites that I needed to, in order to, to do another book, another full full-blown book hmm. and I, although i'd always sort of entertained the idea of writing an autobiography um doing a full-blown autobiography would just be too much work <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so this fit perfectly you know, i remember I, I i first got interested in autobiographies i think when i was in about the sixth grade and i ran across this uh quote by benvenuto cellini uh, the the Italian sculptor, and he said he he has a, he wrote a very famous um, autobiography in which he said something like, um, um, "What did he say? That you had to be at least forty years old and have done something of note to uh, to write an autobiography." So I figured that you know in the sixth grade I was sort of left out; I couldn't really tackle one. But the idea of it was always in the back of my mind, and. And, uh, you know, I, I hit age 40 and zoomed well past it, but, but, but still hadn't done anything particularly notable. But then this pandemic came along and Jim's challenge to write one of these, um, one of these autobiographies. And man, it was just the right thing at the right time. Hmm. Um, and I didn't really con need to concern myself about how many people would be interested in it, you know, uh, because it was a it was a writing exercise. It was a wonderful opportunity to sort of indulge in my own private history. Um, each chapter, each 100 word chapter took a bit of crafting, not just to get the precise number of words, but to make every word work. Right. It was almost like I don't write poetry, but it, it was the way I imagine poetry to be. That is um, a, a sequence of words, all of which has a specific assignment and all of which work together, hopefully perfectly. So hopefully these are considered well-crafted vignettes 
Um, they were arranged roughly chronologically, starting with me getting taken home from the hospital. As a baby. <laughs> and then I rode up to, you know, just as far as, well, I'm 74 years old. So um, I brought it right up to now. That's, that's the, that's the story. And, you know, if you're, if you're curious about what happened in my life, you'll know an awful lot more about me by reading those hundred chapters. I might add that I left out all the nasty stuff, the disappointments, <laughs> the heartbreak, the misbehavior, the, uh, the maltreatment, the failures, all those I left out. It's all pretty upbeat. It's, so you, you know, doing the math. So a hundred chapters, a hundred words. That's a that's a ten thousand ten thousand words. So that's a that's a good size novella. I think it came out to be like a hundred and twenty something pages. Something like that. Yeah. 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 Something like that. Yeah. It, you know, it's um, and it's ten bucks. I mean, you, you, <laughs> it's a bargain. And uh, did yeah. you did did you uh, self publish this? Well, Jim B. Filippi's company, Brown Fedora Books, mm. published it. All right, um, yeah. And he was he was pretty much functioning as a as an editor, and he would cheer me on when I'd get stuck. The other thing about this and, book um, is that let me see why I just happen to have my own copy right here. And I, the other thing I would point out is that you know, flipping through, you can see there's a lot of like pictures. Right. If you're interested in seeing, uh, you know, pictures of me as a helpless, squalling infant, it's here. <laughs> <laughs> and, and if you're interested in seeing a picture of me as a uh, crusty old curmudgeon, there I am. <laughs> uh, so, you know, it's just the life so far. I was going to... so. That was going to be my next question about the editing process for that. How, as you as you mentioned, you said Jim worked with you on on editing that. How yeah. did that work? If he had to take something out, would he tell you to? Did he say I took out seven words, fill those back in, and send it back? Yeah. Or would he just refill them in with a different yeah, word. Yeah, and sometimes he'd do it. You know, he'd just right. find an alternate word. There really wasn't a lot of editing. I, I, by the time I'd send something to him, I just poured over it almost endlessly. Mm. You'd be surprised how long it takes to write 100, um, you know, 100 words um, to get a precise count of 100 words. And uh, still, I'm not used to writing in short segments like that. I tend to go on and on. And so for me, it was a good exercise in restraint. Did you, did you, as you were writing this, did you ever get to a point where you're halfway through a story and, th and thinking, this isn't going to be as good as I was hoping. Let me just scrap this and put in a, and put in a new memory on something. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and a, a lot of them, I couldn't get down to a hundred words and still, um, and, and they wouldn't have the kick I wanted them to have. So I had to eliminate those. Mm. Um, there were a lot I just couldn't, I just couldn't get right. Um, and what I've, what I've decided to do is post some of those on Facebook. Oh, as, okay. As, um, in fact, I just posted one um, about the rapture. And, I and, saw that, uh, yeah. 
Yeah, and, and what you probably didn't do is count the words. There's like 211 words there. And I'm not sure I could have, I mean, I'm sure I could have cut it down some, but I don't know if I could slice it all the way down to 100 words. Right. Yeah, and how much? Because some of the reviews on there are talking about how there's just some really powerful messages of growing up in Vermont. How many of these were stories that you were looking at for the audience to read, or how many of these were stories that you just wanted to write down just to memorialize in a in a way for yourself? All of the above. I I, uh, a lot of these I never would have had an opportunity to tell if I hadn't written this little autobio. Um, and the more I delved into my own past, um, the more I discovered there was a real wellspring of, of information. Mm. Um, I was sleeping with a notebook and a pen beside my bed because, um, in fact, I, I got special pens just for this task. They were pens with built-in flashlights. Oh, cool. <laughs> so I, so I, I didn't need to turn on a light. I could just flip on the light in the flashlight and make my notes. But I would, you know, there's this weird transitional state when you're when you're falling asleep or when you're waking waking up. And I I, I would find that those that little no man's land was when the ideas, when the memories would come. Right. But if I didn't write it down, you know, I, I think I'm falling asleep. I'd, I'd come up with a great idea. And, and I, and I would say, this is such a great idea that there's no way I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to forget this. I'll just write it down in the morning. Sure. And in the morning it's gone. All right. <laughs> so, so I got in the habit of making at least a couple of notes to remind myself the next day, what I needed to write about. Um, <laughs> It, it was an interesting process. I've never, I've never done anything quite like this before. Right. Fun. It was great fun. I'd like to live another seventy-four years so I can write another one. What was your at fir- at first blush when you decided to do this project? How many memories were you able to write down in your first like notes of I'm going to do this one, this one? Did you have twenty right off the bat? You knew you're going to do. Was it forty? Was it yeah? They, they came pretty fast at first. Yeah. And um, reading Jim's book, Jim, Jim wrote a book like like this too. Um, here's Jim's book. But, uh, yeah, there he is. This is this is the first of the uh, the series, and um, re- reading his memories reminded me of things that had happened in my own life. Hmm. And so I, I came came away with an outline that was a useful useful tool to get started. I knew there were some things I I simply had to talk about, big events in my life, like um, my father and mother, um, and I had to write enough about them to give people an idea of what they were like. But it was also important that I I uh, it seemed to me it was important that I I cover their deaths. So I had to have that in the book. And those are some of the, you know, short, poignant chapters. But it was also, um, you know, I wanted to talk about the time I was living in Italy, which never really comes up in conversation at all. And I wanted to talk about that a little bit. And um, family, extended family, meeting meeting, meeting family in Italy when I, I went 
see on my on my mother's side i go back quite a ways as a vermonter but on my father's side um the citros my my grandfather my father's father came here from italy and so i wanted to go back and find where he came from mm. my father still had some cousins there um my grandfather had a brother living there. And see, I wanted, to, I wanted to meet all these people. I knew my Vermont grandfather, no problem. But uh, right. And he's in the book. But. Does there, I, and I don't know if this kind of goes against the, what uh, Jim's um, premise was for the reason for the hundred, the, for the hundred words is, were you ever wanting to make a loophole and say, all right, I'm going to have a part two of this because this is more of a 200 word story? Well, I, I could have done that. I could yeah. have done anything I wanted, but, but it was, you know, it's like you know, you have to you have to obey the form, right? That's true. Yeah. Say, well, I'm going to write a sonnet, but mine's <laughs> going to be twenty lines. Yeah, <laughs> you can't do that. You got to you got to. But but I was um, I, I I was thinking of writing a, a, a kind of a sequel, in which I would include all the salacious, lurid mean and ugly stuff I, I would call it plain brown wrapper and uh just you know all the stuff people want to be in this one and isn't so right i probably won't do that right now did you as you what, what was the first story that you're able that was the first one as soon as you did this this was the first story you wanted to tell that you wrote down um well i wanted to, to talk about my my uh, my third grandmother, my my mm. aunt Ida, who was very in, influential when I was a little boy. She when when my parents rented an apartment from her in Ludlow, Vermont. So when they took me home from the hospital, they took me to this apartment in in her house, and she was at that time when I when I came home from the hospital as a little baby, she was seventy four years old, my age. Wow. And um, she was just a lovely old Vermonter. She she um, she taught me about the the birds and the plants and the flowers, and you know would would read to me just like a grandmother. Um, and she was very influential, very very influential. I wanted to remember her mm-hmm. in this book, so she, I think she appears in the if not the first one of the very earliest chapters. With a picture, a picture of me and her together. Um, interesting side note, but it's more her story than mine. Um, she was the first person in the United States to ever receive a social security check. Really? <laughs> yeah. Huh. Uh, and, and she, she, I remember. Um, you know, she was. <laughs> She was a real old Vermont kind of Puritan woman. And, um, you know, she taught Baptist Bible school, for example. <laughs> and because of the secret, the secret she had that she was the first person to have, have a social security check, they wanted her to go on this TV program called I've Got a Secret. Oh, from the 1950s. I remember that. And um, they were, they were, she didn't have a telephone, so they were. I think they were using. We had a telephone, but she didn't have one, 
So when she was talking to them, she would come into our division of the house and carry on conversations with this. The people who were trying to book her for I've Got a Secret. Mm -hmm. <laughs> she, she, uh, she found out that the program was sponsored by, you know, Philip Morris or something like that, Marlboro's Tobacco. Right. right. So she wouldn't do it. Um. <laughs> no. <laughs> that was the end of that. I mean, she stuck to her principles. Right. Yeah. So, so obviously, Joe, people know you as the ghost writer. You write a lot of ghost stories about New England and Vermont specifically. And last time you were on, you were talking about the book that was coming out called The Ghost Guide, A Second Conjuring. And was this a, this was a, uh, a remastering of a previous book? Well, it, it's, yeah. Um, the ghost, the Vermont ghost guide came out in 20, in the year 2000. Okay. And I wrote it and Steve Bissett did the illustrations. Right. And, um, you know, he did he did some wonderful, wonderful work in it. This is not exactly the best way to show this stuff, I guess, but um, he did some wonderful work in it, but he wasn't really available to, to pick up the, the expanded version. Mm. Um, he's involved with, with other things. And um, I was talking to Robert about it, and I said I really wanted to do um, an expansion of it. Mm. and Robert was, you know, willing to, to take over. And the, one of the, one of the more conspicuous, we, we added um, probably 30 something new stories. Wow. That weren't, that weren't in the smaller, the smaller edition. Right. And um, we expanded it in a number of ways. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's quite a bit bigger. Right. And uh, it's Robert did an illustration for every story. Wow. It's amazing. The guy is so prolific and he's so good. Um, and we worked together and I wrote 30 new stories and he did an illustration for every one. And the book is there for anyone who wants it. What we wanted to do was to kind of kind of take a census of Vermont ghosts and see what I what I've always wanted to do since I started writing mm. was to chronicle as many of Vermont weird tales as I could. Nobody had ever done that. You, you know, it's it's hard to believe, but in the history of our state. No single writer has ever devoted himself or herself to trying to collect the state's weird tales. Right. So as soon as I realized that, I also developed a sense of mission about it. And I decided I wanted to be the one to do that. I realized it's going to be impossible. I, I, somebody's got to, somebody's got to take over, but, um, I mean, I can continue to consult via Ouija board for the next, <laughs> but for now, I mean, I, I need somebody to, to, to pick up and, and, and carry on. But I, I, I sort of wanted to be the Abby Hemingway of scary, scary right. stories. And, um, 
So I, let me ask you, Joe, wait, since you've been doing this well on over 20 years, uh, almost 30 years collecting these stories, you, do you have a lot of people who offer you up some legends and say, here's this? And when they do, do you do any cr like fact checking? Not fact checking whether it's true or not, but whether it's a known folk story or I do legend. and I, I do uh, and, and I, I, there's some internal mechanism that tells me how much checking to do mm. um, people sometimes people try to fool me right you know they they, they think well I'll, I'll make up a story and I'll tell it to him and he'll put it in one of his books usually I can catch that I've over the years I've developed a pretty good um, you know bullshit detector and I can usually tell when someone's trying to trying to put me on. Um, there's a lot of a lot of stories that are good stories, but of questionable provenance. And, and, and if the story's good enough, I might write it anyway. But I'll say, well, there's no real reason to believe this, but so and so tells me that. You know, there's there's a dinosaur running around up in Norton or something like that. I, you know, whatever it is, um, just because the story has a certain charm to it. Right. But I'm pretty careful to, you know, so, some some of the stories have been with us forever. Um, the story about freezing the old people. Right. We can date that pretty accurately because a guy made that up and published it in in the Montpelier newspaper. Um, I guess it was in the late 1800s. And that is a story that started out as fiction, but kind of grew feet and took off on its own. And now there are people who believe that really happened. Mm -hmm. So Robert and I are in, 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 in our new project, we're getting to the bottom of that. Uh, I, I, um, the, this comic book that he and I are writing Maybe the first of a series. I don't know. Mm. Uh, it's what we're working on right now. Again, it's a pandemic project. It's something we can we can work on without going out into the field. We can send our characters out, out to the field because he and I are appearing in the comic. We are characters in the comic. Right. This is the first one, The Lair of the Beast. And as you can see, that's me and Robert down in, down in the bottom right below the crypto castle right um so yeah that's maybe the cover maybe not we we haven't really decided on a cover but this is the working cover so talk to us about this then joe <laughs> vermont horror so you're making a comic book series about infamous tales of terror from the green mountain state and this is going to be in comic book form yeah and it's wow. the we're we're this is our project and whether it has more than one issue, we don't know. Right. Could, could, could fall flat. There's always that possibility with any book, but um, if, if people like it and enjoy it and get a kick out of it, it's another way of preserving these stories. Right. And for us, we have the advantage of, you know, we, we, as, as we recount these stories to each other, we often find ourselves saying, well, wouldn't it be go back? Wouldn't it be great if we could go back in time and sit in on one of the Eddie Brothers seances or something mm -hmm. like that? And 
using the comic book form, well, we can do that. We can, <laughs> we can free flow through time and we can, uh, you know, tour around the state without exposing ourselves to any COVID germs. Right. viruses rather and um so so that's it it's this first issue will have i think five stories and um i wrote them robert illustrated them and they'll they're going to be coming out as a comic that's, so and then before before we went on the air you were talking about how writing for a com like writing a stri a comic book script is different than normal prose what are some of the things that you've had to adjust in your writing style when you're writing for a comic book that's yeah, a good question i i think it's a little like um writing a movie script mm. and you know they they have um with, when they when they make movies there's a there's a screenplay and then there's a storyboard and it seems to be, they seem to be similar processes. I, I'm writing the screenplay. Robert's doing the storyboard. Um, that's, here's, here's what the storyboard might have looked like for that, the page you just okay. see. It's not as developed. Right. What I have to do when I'm writing it is to, it, it, is to picture the story as, as as panels and i also have to keep the the, the verbiage down so we're not talking a hundred words now like with the autobio we're talking about you know five words ten words in the in the captions we don't want a lot of writing right so um there's kind of robert is tremendously skilled at um taking what i've written so i don't know how to write a comic script um, I'm just kind of learning as I go, and he's he's very good at taking what I've written and doing doing the adaptation. Um, he's he's so, much more experienced in the world of pictures than I am. Right. So where do you sit on this when you're when you're putting this together? Are you looking at what are some of the masthead folklore of vermont that are going to grab the audience in right away or are you looking for stories that you haven't told yet that you feel might benefit from a different medium well again all of the above <laughs> i i um i don't know i'm not sure if there are a lot of stories that i haven't told yet there's only I think there's only one or two in this comic that I've never told elsewhere, okay. but I can bring different aspects of the story out right. because I think readers, if the readers are reading my, my prose, my longer books, they might be, they might be thinking, well, I wonder what that scene looks like. You know, I wonder mm. what it would be like if I were standing in front of that haunted house and we can do that with a comic book. Just mm. like we could with a movie, if we were <laughs> wanted to lose our shirts on a movie, right? And how much of is there any stories that that you've told in a previous iteration, whether it be like your 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 ghost guide, that might not be as powerful if it's visual, because then you are portraying how you want the ghost to look like, or you want the monster to look like, instead of 
the horror of the imagination of the reader? That's a really good question. I, I think it doesn't. Uh, I may I may come up with a different answer to this if you ask me another time, but for now, I I, I think that's more important in illustrating the novels, like mm -hmm. uh, like Corey. I worked on on uh, on Shadow Child with Corey Furman, mm -hmm. and. He provided something like 10 illustrations to go with a three, 300-page text. Hmm. And we had to kind of work together to be sure he wasn't giving anything away that should be happening in the reader's imagination. Um, I've been working with another artist on another novel who's illustrating another of my novels. And I... I felt it was important to, he probably knew this on his own, but it's one of those things the writer is obliged to say, and that is, don't show any pictures of the monster. Because that's exactly what should be happening in the reader's imagination. Um, the reader should picture the monster. You can show the monster's hand or paw, as the case may be, but just as a full-blown imagining of the monster, it would be a mistake. Let that happen. Mm -hmm. The reader and the, the reader and the writer are partners in a piece of fiction. They both bring something to it, you know. Um, and the writer, the writer, just kind of puts the palette out there, and the and the, and the reader fills it in. Right. It, it's an it's an interesting it's an interesting process. With the comic book, that's not so important. I don't think that's so important. I think if you can show it show it mm. and plus you you bring an illustrator to the table instead of as you say you had the reader and the writer now you have the illustrator who and in some cases you want to make sure it's there is it the illustrator's job to share the vision of the reader or share the vision of the writer well maybe his own his or her mm. own vision, in this case, his. I'll continue to use his because I'll, I'm talking about Robert. Right. Um, he, he, there's one monster in the book, and I described it a bit. And then Robert took over and put flesh on the bones, as it were. And so the reader will see what Robert created. They will imagine what Robert created. So, right. It's, it's, I guess there are three, three partners involved in the, in the comic, the, the writer, the illustrator, and the reader. We'll see. It's all an experiment, but it's a lot of fun. Robert's yeah. having fun with it. Yeah, I'm surprised. So, because as I say, in the, in the past, so in the past two years, you are now working on, this is your fifth project. Well... We, we did two maps. Oh, that's right. The the Vermont monster map. And we did another map of ghosts. Oh, wow. We did, we did the uh, Vermont ghost guide. We did the Vermont uh, ghost experience. And God, is there something I'm forgetting? I think that's it. The comic book, which is published yet, but will be right. this year. That'll be out, out later this year. Robert has some target 
for that, that he wants um, he wants to be ready by such and such a day when he's he's doing a convention. Right. And as you'd mentioned, the Vermont Ghost Experience, which came out last year, that is that is the book that you, as you mentioned earlier, that you also did with with Robert Brunel. Yeah, yeah. Junior. I guess it, when it when it comes from a cryptozoological category, where do you see yourself as it comes to categorizations of you got you know you got ghosts, you got monsters? Is there is there specific categories that, through a Venn diagram perspective, cannot some of them cannot cross over when it comes to what you particularly like to collect as stories? That's you know, I there's a couple words that are useful um, when we're talking about my canon. One is um, weird, weird shit. <laughs> Just anything, weird. anything that's weird. I like to I like to explore and write about and. And right. and, uh, and perhaps a more academic term might be um, Fortean studies, um, which is a co coined from a, a writer named Charles Fort, who was the, the first to collect in a serious way or semi-serious way. His his writings are all pretty pretty thoroughly tongue-in-cheek, but hmm. um, he he was the first to catalog mysterious happenings. Right. Did you, and because over the times, some of your previous work opened up towards New England, uh, but some of your later work seems to refocus again in Vermont. Are you still looking at things that are in New Hampshire and Massachusetts and things like not anymore? No, just just Vermont. And as as my focus gets more and more narrow, mm. the potential number of readers also get smaller. Right. Um, but I, I, again, I, 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 as I said, I, I have a sense of mission about this and I, right. I want to collect Vermont's tales. Um, so that's all, that's all I'm doing now. Right. Um, recently within the last couple of years, one of my new England books was just republished. Mm -hmm. um, that's cursed in new England. Right. which is a collection of stories about curses. And some of my other New England-based books are still in print, like Passing Strange, right. Tales of New Englanders, or I can't even remember what its title is, something like that. Right. And um, what else? Well, Passing Strange and Cursed in New England. Oh, and Weird New England, that big Big, big, big book sized coffee table monstrosity of a book yeah that's still that's still in print was there anything i'm just i always wanted to i was always curious about this was there any story in there that you've collected that really made you say there's something here like made you really like a big a pretty significant head scratcher for you yeah there's a few um yeah, you can't do this and not run into one or two of those. Some are pretty easy to dismiss. Right. You know, and, the, and those are not the ones you're asking about. You're asking about the ones that um, re really cause, cause me to, to think. Um, there's one that's old, there's one that's new, and there's one that happened to me. Mm. Uh, the oldest one 
is the story of the Eddy brothers in Chittenden. Um, late 19th century, around 1876, these two brothers, William and Horatio Eddy, were conducting seances in their farmhouse in Chittenden, Vermont. And they were producing what appeared to be three-dimensional phantoms. And people were coming from all over the world to witness these phantoms in the hopes of seeing among them some deceased relative. And people would testify that they had met their father or met the, their great uncle or whatever. Um, some years ago, Vermont Life magazine invited me to um, do a, an article about the Eddie brothers. And my assignment was to try to debunk them. Mm. And that was challenging because I couldn't really debunk them. I could, I could impeach them a little bit. I could cite examples of them being discovered in fraud, but I couldn't really, I couldn't really definitely say that the seances were all fake mm. because the, the phenomena were just too, um, there were just too many, too many weird things happened. They, these two guys couldn't have pulled it all off. It was just impossible. Mm -hmm. They, they, um, they had phantoms appearing that were from different countries and different nationalities. And they were speaking, um, one of the phantoms spoke in Russian to a, a Russian woman in the audience. Well, William and Horatio Eddy were barely literate. Mm. Uh, you know, they had some, the English was a bit of a challenge for them. So where were they learning Russian? How did they fake that? Um, there's so many examples of things that would, would have been tremendously hard for them to fake. Um, so that's, that's one that gives me pause. Um, I think it also makes me realize that they, they, they were to some degree charlatans, but at the same time, they might have been legit. Who knows? Right. So that's, that's an old one that, that, in fact, that that's one of the things that got me into this in the beginning, just research, re, researching the Eddie brothers. Okay. A more modern story took place. I, I live I live in Windsor, birthplace of Vermont. That's where I'm. That's where I am right now. I'm I'm in a house that was built in um, 1786, and that's during that period of time when Vermont was an independent republic before right. we were even state. I like that. Anyway, yeah. um, this should be a haunted house, but it's. I know a number of people have died here, but uh, they, they, they stay away, the ghosts stay away. But there's another house here in town where in the late 50s, 1957, I think it was, um, water started appearing inside the house. Um in the con the first the first person to notice it was one of the daughters named Janet. And she she discovered water in the concave seat of a wooden chair in her room. Hmm. And she cleaned it up, 
but other people were finding water elsewhere in the house. And I think, I think in the first day they cleaned up something like 13 buckets full of water wow. to figure out where it was coming from. And, and they, they, um, it, and it kept happening. This started in October and lasted, I think, until December. And it got so bad that they had to leave the house. Um, they would see water cascading down the, the stairs and they, it would fill up plates and glasses and cups in the kitchen cabinet. And it, the, the guy, um, it was a, a medical doctor who owned the house and he told one of the um, one of the newspaper reporters that he had taken a plate full of grapes, a bowl full of grapes from the refrigerator. And by the time he got into the living room with this bowl of grapes, the bowl had filled with water. Just wow. seriously. And the story the story has a lot of charm. It, it sounds like a typical poltergeist story because there were a couple of teenage daughters in the house. There was the doctor himself who we can presume was sort of of a scientific disposition. So he wouldn't be too quick to say it was a mystery. He'd say it was, must be coming from someplace. But he got a bunch of experts in the house, and um, including a plumber who shut the water to the house off, not at the main in the house itself, but at the, at the street. Mm. And the house continued to fill with water. Hmm. Um, I talked to his, he, he had passed on, the plumber had passed on, but I talked to his wife, who was in her late 80s, when I talked to her. And I've talked to her son, who's become a good friend of mine here in town. And um, they told me that he was, the plumber, was really baffled by this because, uh, you know, water wasn't behaving the way he learned it was supposed to. He, when he was getting his master's license, they didn't say anything about water just spontaneously appearing. Right. And apparently he was he was a strict Roman Catholic, and so there was something about this that was at odds with his religious experience. So it was it was it, it was very apparently it was very troubling for him. Right. So so that's wow. then the thing that happened to me. You think a lot of stuff would happen to me because I'm always putting myself in harm's way. I'm, you know, when before the pandemic, I was doing things like spending the night by myself in allegedly haunted buildings and things like that. But um, the the thing the thing that happened that was really strange and hard to explain, um, and makes me think there's something else, happened when I was living in Burlington before I moved here to Windsor. Uh, I, I was alone in my house at night and um, all of a sudden I heard this sort of high-pitched whining sound and I couldn't for the life of me figure out what it was. I thought maybe a smoke alarm was going off or something like that. And um, So I got up and looked around and there was no smoke alarm going off and I thought, well, maybe it's a car alarm outside. So I walked over to the door I mean, to the, to the window and opened the window and looked outside, no car alarm, but I could still hear this high-pitched keening sound. And um, as, I, as I walked by the kitchen, I could tell that that's where the sound was coming from, the kitchen. Mm. So I, I went into the kitchen. I'm, I'm not spooked yet, 
I'm still looking for the source of this. And um, I had left um, an tidiest person in the world, and I had left a lot of dirty dishes on the on the countertop. And um, I hadn't started the dishwasher, so it wasn't that. And as I looked, I saw that one of these, one of the dishes, one it was a glass. It was a French tumbler. Mm. And um, it was spinning oh. really fast. <laughs> and, and I couldn't believe it. I just stared at it, and it was spinning faster than, faster than you can imagine. I, I mean, faster than you could spin it. Right. Afterwards, to you know, spin it that fast. There's just nothing you can't you can't spin it that fast. It was spinning so fast, and, and it was making the noise. Oh wow! And while I was looking at it, get this: while I was looking at it, it exploded. Whoa! Now people tend not to believe this story. Um, my my neighbor was a scientist, is a scientist. He's still employed as a scientist. And um, he, he and I knew each other well enough so that when I took the story to him, he knew I wasn't fabricating the story. He, he knew I was reporting it as accurately as I could. And he, he, and he knew me well enough to know that I wasn't trying to put him on. So he, and he explained to me that, you know, the, the whole problem with this stuff is that it's not repeatable. Things happen like this, right. but you can't get them to happen again. And so they elude the scientific method because they're not repeatable. And that never, nothing like that had ever happened to me before. Nothing like that has happened to me since. And I've tried to spin right. <laughs> glasses and I can't even get them to spin. I mean, they, I can't get them to spin that fast. I can't get them to spin. I mean, it was right. It was right up on its edge, like like that sort of. Um, so it was the strangest thing, and no one has ever offered any explanation. It was like you remember those old TV commercials where they have an opera singer. And oh, and then, and then the glass would break. Yeah, yeah. It was yeah. kind of like that. Like there was some focused sound on it, but where that sound was coming from, I think there's only one answer, Barney. Aliens, it's got to be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's the strangest thing, and and uh, I, I've mentioned that a lot. I used to, I used to not mention it. Right. I started mentioning it when I was speaking to groups in hopes of finding somebody else who had had some experience. Right. Like huh. Wow. Well, so so Joe, we're at the top of our hour already. So, uh. So congratulations again um, on your on on your your newest book, and Thanks. excited to see your 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 comic book to be coming out. That's really exciting. And if people want to read some of your books, where's the best way that people can get a hold of your books? Well, probably Amazon. I, okay. I hate to keep saying Amazon. I'd, right. I'd rather be able to send them to local stores, but a lot of local stores just aren't carrying my stuff. Mm. And um, the new one, Loose Ends, the autobiography, is only available through Amazon. It's a special exclusive deal between the publisher 
and Amazon Books. It's okay. available worldwide, but just just through Amazon. Okay. So that's it's. But ten bucks, you know, you can't go right. wrong. You can't go Especially wrong with that. You don't even have to pay for the shipping. Right. See. Right. Right. That's right. Well, thank you so much, Joe. And you get you got to come back on when you want when your your comic book comes out. Maybe we could come on together, me. Yeah. And you and Robert, we'll put you both on. Yeah, yeah that'd be great. Be yeah. yeah. And you'll All be right. speaking to him soon. So um, say hi. Yep, I sure will. <laughs> it's just All fun. Right. Thank you.